Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You are tuned in to the Foul Weather Podcast. The forecast to your next successful hunt. Coming to you from the home office, Jack's Reef, New York. Corn is neither the solution nor the problem. This is the corn episode. We break it all down on this week's episode of the Foul Weather Podcast. Well, other than some youth and veterans hunts, the duck season has come to an end. There's a lot to reflect on, and in the coming month, the Foul Weather Podcast will give a summary of the season and how well our long-term forecast and expectations of the season worked out. We thank our Every Week listeners. You never missed a single migration forecast episode each Monday morning throughout season. You all are as ate up as me about ducks, duck biology, and duck migration. You knew where the ducks were at before the ducks knew where they were at. Think about that. You knew where the ducks were at before the ducks knew where they were at. Our dedicated weekly listeners picked the best days to hunt because the Foul Weather Podcast forecasts fresh ducks hot from the north. You shot the ducks from the north before they knew where they were at. I'm your host, Dr. Mike, coming to you from the home office in Jack's Reef. Duck season's over, and food plot planting plans for next year are upon us. Our food plots are 24-7, 365 days a year. That's what they do. I don't know, do you have deer every day in your food plots? Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night keeps these food plots from the swift completion of their appointed rounds to feed deer. You see what we did there? Yeah, we used that whole, like, U.S. Postal Service theme. Anyway. It is a fact that our food plots are still feeding deer each night here at the farm in Jack's Reef, right? No matter snow nor rain. We've actually had a lot of rain this winter, but during that last cold that we felt towards the end of duck season for folks in the south, the deer finally hit our corn. Uh, So they fed through the soybean greens, the buckwheat, the sunflowers, the clover, then on to the hardened off soybeans and sorghum, then switched to winter peas, kale, and turnips. Uh, They've hit that corn, as I said. Now they're on to the dwarf Essex brassicas. And in the spring, we hope the winter peas, kale, and dwarf Essex uh, brassicas kind of power through the cold to provide some early spring greens 24-7, you know, 365 days a year as we aim to have deer visit us 365 days a year. We manage small acres, you know, with, with good numbers of deer around us, so we aim to keep kind of does and doe and fawn brains thinking about our property as a destination throughout the entire year. You know, we definitely harvest does. We even shoot fawns here and there. Um... Those are both deer and kind of food management tools for us at the farm. Uh, But holding does and fawns near us and on us is also a a really a strong uh, big buck shooting tool for us. It's going to sound like peanuts to some folks uh, because we only manage about 14 acres directly, right? 
and we're, but we're still regularly super close or have harvested you know nice bucks while also ensuring we're still filling freezers with with does and fawns and i'm going to say yes also fawns right we tickle, typically really look to nab a, a fawn maybe once per year usually not more than that it's a great way to feed venison to kind of newbies and have them realize how good venison can can really be we also don't hate the tender meat ourselves right um, but also, if anything, deer densities in our neighborhood are just super high to the point that they can negatively affect their own nutrition on most years. So weeding out a bunch of does and fawns is seemingly never a problem. Maybe we save a few oak saplings in that process too, right? Um, I'm not sure. But we don't shoot button bucks or, or billy bucks as we call them. Um, the, the bucks in general and even the young bucks get hit too hard anyway. So we're not looking at taking any first-year bucks, too. So we stick to older bucks, does, um, and fawn does really most of the time. Okay, enough about deer and deer food plots for now. Coming late winter and spring and continuing into spring, we're going to produce a bunch of episodes that focus on managing duck habitat, ways to manage your duck hole, to feed ducks, and to shoot more ducks. But we'll also focus on how you can help make more ducks for next year, right? We should all be looking to find ways to make more ducks for next year. This week is the North American Duck Symposium, and I'm in Portland, Oregon, with eight students presenting on a variety of topics from weather severity indices for geese and diving ducks to kind of game farm mallard genetics, to how we use feather samples from harvested ducks to determine where they were hatched, and energetic models for duck habitat management decision making. If you're interested in all the topics from across North America that will be presented, the program and information about talks can easily be found by googling Duck Symposium 9, that is the number 9, Duck Symposium 9, and then click on program. At the top of that page there's another tab where you can get details about all the great talks that are going on. But point here is that the Foul Weather Podcast will be taking a week off from episodes after this, but we will be back in two weeks. Uh, In the meantime, you can catch up on previous episodes if you have not done so already. There's a bunch of good backlog stuff out there for you to listen to. But first, today's episode is dedicated to corn, and this probably won't be the last time we talk about corn. First and foremost, corn is king on the landscape in much of North America, but growing corn also has caused substantial habitat loss for waterfowl and other species. Corn also provides a large amount of nutrition, largely in the form of carbohydrates, but also protein, to wildlife, right, and that includes waterfowl. So it isn't as easy as corn is bad or corn is good. Corn is corn, and we should understand that it can be a tool for wildlife and waterfall management, but also can negatively impact wildlife through habitat loss when acres are converted to corn. To a large degree, and certainly speaking in generalizations here, many wildlife biologists and conservationists have it in their head that corn is always bad and have removed it from their toolbox as an effective tool to put a massive amount of energy on the landscape in a small area to help meet the energy needs of, and in this case, waterfowl in smaller space over kind of a shorter period of time. This may not be apparent to everyone, but many wildlife management areas and national wildlife refuges are removing farming altogether from their toolbox. In my opinion, this is really the wrong approach because the underlying theme there is that wildlife conservation and farming are not compatible. It acts like wildlife management areas and national wildlife refuges are islands that are going to save wildlife for all of us. 
it's really counter to what we're all taught. Rather, what happens on private lands is actually what impacts wildlife the most. Farming is not going away, and wildlife will find a way, and we will have to find a way in an increasingly farmed landscape to keep wildlife with us. So acting like farming and wildlife conservation are not compatible is like putting your head in the sand. These folks are really avoiding the fact that farming is not going anywhere. So why not use wildlife management areas and national wildlife refuges as examples of how farming and wildlife conservation can be compatible? But this is not what is happening in many locations. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For example, the National Wildlife Refuge System in the Northeast U.S. has all but removed farming through crude and what I'd call knee-jerk concerns about herbicide application, specifically Roundup-ready corn or the application of glyphosate on GMO crops. So people are aware, and maybe some folks listening are just not aware of how kind of Roundup-ready crops work. Um, glyphosate, is, glyphosate is the base active ingredient. And the trade name Roundup is simply the surfactant that makes this active ingredient stick to and translocate or move throughout the plant so that it's killed, right? And so there's various uh, other trade names that incorporate glyphosate in them. So Roundup is really just that uh, that trade name, right? Without getting into the chemistry, the plant is genetically modified to tolerate glyphosate where it kills other plants. So it can be, you know, sprayed on, on corn, um, once it's growing while also killing the other plants that compete, right? Um, and then thereby, you know, that releases the crop, in, in this case corn, from competition with weeds. Anyhow, the Northeast U.S. Uh, National Wildlife Refuge System has moved away from farming, partially on the basis of removing glyphosate application on their lands. But my speculation is also that there has been a real strong philosophical change in what employees of the National Wildlife Refuge System in the Northeast would like to have refuges focus on. Refuges were started to ensure habitat and rest locations for waterfall, but increasingly in the Northeast U.S., people are shifting away from a focus on game species towards non-game water birds and other upland birds, largely with an increased focus on biodiversity and conservation of endangered and threatened species, again, away from game species, in this case on national wildlife refuges, right? Removing farming from refuges is a way to move towards other species and away from managing for waterfowl. Not always the case, but certainly my speculation on why this general move has happened. This entire philosophical shift away from something we know how to do really well, waterfall management, to something we are not entirely sure we can do at all, recovery of threatened and endangered species, is kind of another topic altogether. But I will reiterate that if people think they are going to save species on these islands of land, these wild, wildlife management areas, and national wi wildlife refuges alone, they don't have their heads screwed on straight. Interestingly, the southeast U.S. still uses farming as a major management tool on national wildlife refuges as a way to meet energy needs for 
non-breeding waterfowl during migration winter. So certainly this is a regional policy in the northeast U.S. that has gone completely off the rails. Corn, however, while producing an abundance of carbohydrates and protein, is nutritionally incomplete, and locations only focused on corn are certainly missing the boat when it comes to holding ducks, because ducks also need essential amino acids in the form of moist soil seeds and vegetation, as well as invertebrates that they cannot get from corn. Further, well-managed moist soil wetlands can and usually do produce more food for ducks than harvested cornfields, a lot more. Now, flooding unharvested corn is an entirely different beast altogether, and if not kind of predated by blackbirds and other critters, unharvested corn can certainly sometimes provide even more food than waterfowl can even eat in a season. A strong case of this is the private clubs in northwest Ohio along Lake Erie that it's estimated that they plant and flood enough corn to feed the migrant population of waterfowl something like five times over, right? So it's simply an arms race among clubs to see who can plant the most corn. The reality is that they are likely creating a situation where food is so dense that ducks simply sit out on Lake Erie bays all day and then fly into these cornfields at night to feed likely actually reducing rather than enhancing hunting success. And, uh, you know, the telemetry data of watching how birds move during day and night uh, actually shows this pattern. So you can actually have too much corn in places. But no one wants to abandon their corn with the fear that the other guy, the other club, will have more and all the ducks, right? Luckily, there are clubs that practice moist soil management to meet the full nutritional needs of these ducks in that area, and they do tend to hold a good number of birds overall. Okay, so this brings us to the point of tackling some myths about corn, and then I'll get into why corn is not your problem. I think we kind of just hit on why corn is not the solution, too, but more on actual kind of maybe negative effects of corn on habitat a bit later. First of all, and this all comes from things we've heard through social media and otherwise, nobody amended the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, or MBTA, to allow for flooded corn. Growing domestic crops and flooding them has always been legal under MBTA. Never have you been able to manipulate the crop, right? And non-manipulated crops do not even fall under discussions about normal agricultural practices because this does not kick in until some type of crop harvest is attempted. So waterfall can be taken over standing flooded crops as long as you do not manipulate that crop. I'm going to say this just to cover our butt here, though. Do not take anything in the Fall Weather Podcast as legal advice, all right? Okay, so flooding crops is legal, and there is no conspiracy among Ducks Unlimited and rich private club owners to modify the MBTA in 1998. Didn't happen. Second, and if I sound like a crazy person, I'm not. I'm just literally debunking myths that are out there, right? National wildlife refuges north of you do not use ice eaters, nor does Ducks Unlimited fund those ice eaters for rich private clubs so that water can stay open in flooded crops. Doesn't happen, but I know you keep hearing about it. Third, all right, and here we go. There is a two-punch reason why flooded corn is not affecting if you see ducks at southern latitudes. First, when I say duck, I think we all know that, that we mean mallards, right? But I'll use it generically throughout as, as ducks. And I'll talk about mallards specifically when I'm really talking about mallards, okay? 
So first, last year in the U.S., we planted a record 94.6 million acres to corn, which yielded a record 15.3 billion bushels of corn. Now let's go through the quick math here as to how much waste grain energy for feeding ducks that produces. If we use 75, there's a little bit of math here, but hang with me, folks. If we use 75 kilograms per hectare of waste grain, which is the published average that is used for corn, that's what's left on the ground after harvest, and then we have to subtract 15 kilograms per hectare because it's some you know low level of corn density in a field. It's just no longer profitable for a bird to feed. That is, ducks and geese don't eat the last kernel in a field most of the time. So we multiply that 60 kilograms per hectare out converted to grams by multiplying by 1,000 and use 3.67 kcals, kilocalories per gram that waterfowl can obtain from corn, and we get a really, really, really frickin' large number in the billions of kilocalories on the landscape. I'm not going to read that full number here. We then divide just by the energy needed by one duck for one day to sustain itself. And here I'm going to use the energy needed by a mallard, which on average is 356.8 kilocalories per day. And then divide by 153, which is all the way, that's the numbers of days from September to the end of January. And that waste grain alone, hold on to your shorts here, folks, could feed 154 million mallards. If we use the energy needed by a Canada goose, which is a lot larger, that number still becomes 63 million geese that could be fed for a 153-day period on corn alone. All right, let's, um, let's just say a quarter of those fields, because they're at southern latitudes and the corn rots before they get there, um, we're still at a half of 154 million mallards. All right, let's just take a quarter of that. We're still well over the entirety of the of the continental population of mallards that can be fed on waste grain, just the waste grain of corn alone in fields from those massive numbers of acres that are now planted to corn, 94.6 million acres of corn in the United States alone. There is a problem in some areas, though. Um, a lot of people have seen field feeding on the decline, even at northern latitudes. Harver harvester efficiency in some places of combines is so great that really fields start below kind of that bottom density, right? The biggest offender of this is, is when it's, it's cut as silage, which is cutting the, you know, the entire plant down um, pretty early, right? And it's increasingly starting to happen uh, with the increase in CAFOs or concentrated animal feed operations, right? The loss of the small dairy farm has increased the number of concentrated animal feeding operations. And along with it, you know, it, it concentrates animal waste geographically and, and causes in increased water quality issues. Okay, that's a topic for another day. But small dairy spread out across the landscape was probably better for wildlife, probably better for water quality. And at that, you know, probably better better for people, right? But again, so diverging a little bit here, a discussion for another day. Silage or this whole corn plant cutting and feeding to animals is estimated this year at 130,000 tons. If we subtract this from the corn available, considering it zeroes fields out and there's nothing there, this drops that number to 60 million geese and 100. And 46 million ducks, so it doesn't have really an overall impact. And again, I don't know, even take only a quarter of that somehow that's available to ducks and geese, and it's still 
really in the millions of birds, a substantial portion, if not all of the population alone, can be fed that way. The point? Even without flooded corn, waste grain alone laying in fields across the country could feed the ducks and geese on this continent many, many times over. The second major point of why flooded corn is not the primary problem of why you're not seeing ducks is that if it got cold and snowed like it traditionally did, that resource would be covered with ice and snow. Yeah, of course, people run ice eaters here and there, etc. But the reality is, and I've seen it, that when it truly gets cold and snows two feet, ducks leave and go south. And that ain't happening like it once did. Okay, so I've heard this before, and some folks are thinking in their head, given that it's warmer nowadays with less snow, if there wasn't flooded corn, ducks would just have to migrate south, right? Well, then we fall back to how much food is just on the landscape from waste corn alone, and the fact that most ducks don't just go south when they run out of food. They typically go east and west up rivers in search of food. Why go south when all you're going to do at the end of winter is you're going back north anyway. It doesn't make sense to add those miles and risk to your migration. Alrighty then, that is a lot of energy on the landscape for ducks and geese just in corn acres alone. We haven't even touched on declines in rice acres in coastal Louisiana and Texas, right? U.S. rice planted acreage decreased between 1995 and 2017. Particularly Texas, Mississippi, and Louisiana experienced average annual decreases, average annual decreases of 3.2%, 2.6%, and 1.7% respectively. Annual Arkansas area was much smaller, right? Conversely, area increased on average of 1.6% per year in Missouri. The number of farms that that farm rice also greatly reduced, which continues a trend of farm contraction we see right, in farming pretty much everywhere. Fewer but bigger farms. But in the case of area and rice, less throughout traditional southern U.S. rice country, but a bit of an increase in Missouri, which has the potential to hold ducks at the boot heel latitude a bit longer, right? So the story's not great, right? Increases in food at northern latitudes coupled with declining food at southern latitudes plus a warming trend with less snow. That said, it's not all doom and gloom because the weather, although on average is much warmer, it's also becoming more volatile. And so we should expect that those kind of short periods of intense cold might become more common. Just like the season ending cold we just got. So being ready and knowing when weather severity index values are going to jump and weather's going to send ducks south, well, that's going to become increasingly important so that you can hit those best days to hunt fresh ducks. Last year, we're going to end with the negatives of corn on habitat or wildlife habitat, right? When corn prices per bushel get too high, which is driven by really complex supply and demand, subsidies to not farm go away, right? They don't go away. It's just not economical for the farmer to use a USDA, Natural Resources Conservation Service, um, you know, something in CRP or WRP, those subsidies, those payments don't make it worth it, right? When corn per bushel gets too high. This also allows banks to loan money to farmers for equipment previously too risky because the likelihood of return on investment and paying back loans is greater when corn prices are high and remain high and the forecast is for them to remain high. 
So during the last real boom in, you know, this per price, um, sorry, price per bushel of corn, a lot of rock pickers were able (laughs) to make previously unfarmable native prairie, right? That is areas really important to nesting ducks. Well, it made that land farmable. And once converted, it's nearly impossible to ever get that native prairie back and the density of nesting ducks back. What drives these prices is complex, but certainly the ethanol craze has not helped. So let's tackle that one real quick and kind of, I'd say, superficially here. Taking a step back, think about this. We burn about 400 times the primary productivity of this planet in energy from oil alone every year. So thinking we can take plants to fuel our vehicles is absurd. Also, the math doesn't work. If the aim, I'm not going to talk about climate change and CO2 here. I'm just saying if the aim is to reduce CO2 output, well, that ain't happening, right? Because the carbon carbon sequestered by native prairie and other grasslands that's lost to ethanol production actually makes the CO2 footprint greater from growing corn for ethanol fuel than letting the grasslands on this planet just, just do that work for you. So beyond being bad for your engines in general, ethanol never made sense and just really needs to go away. Second, most of us don't ask for corn byproducts in our food. So mostly what we have is a production machine that then finds ways to cram corn products into our food that we never specifically asked for, right? Maybe we did it through purchasing by looking for cheaper replacements, which corn can be, but we pay for it by these health problems for eating massive amounts of processed food later. I'm not going to go down this road too much because it starts to get away from the focus of the Foul Weather Podcast, but it did deserve mention because the acres of corn on the landscape certainly have decreased duck habitat in the way of grassland, but also wetland drainage for farming of corn. Certainly, as I started, this corn is king and useful in so many ways. But we could also meter our acres to allocate some area, you know, that's better for other important human uses. That, in my opinion, starts with removing, you know, ethanol as an option and decreasing demand for corn through our own consumption decisions. In no way is that going to be the demise of corn in the landscape or as a staple for farmers in this country, nor should it. All right, so I hope you learned something today about corn's ups and downs for ducks, duck habitat, and duck hunting. As always, feel free to send your comments, rants, and hate mail to Mike at foulweather.co, and I'll do my best to respond and possibly incorporate your thoughts into later episodes of the Foul Weather Podcast. We always really like to hear from our listeners. Spread the word about the Foul Weather Podcast. We are an all-season duck hunting, duck population, duck habitat management, duck science, all-duck, all-season podcast. Remember to share, follow, and rate us for free. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, and Instagram. We appreciate if you take the time to rate the Foul Weather Podcast, and we thank you very, very much for your support. We are the forecast to your next successful hunt. Thanks for listening, and as always... May your skies be filled and shoot straight, my friends.